Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Andrea Norton's The Stars Are Ours. Volume 5, Chapter 8, Cold Sleep. Unable to see the Burper's crew, the defenders had only the narrowest and most impossible mark to shoot at, the gun's muzzle. Perhaps that action was only to occupy their minds by concentrating on that menace, by seeing or thinking of nothing else. They could, each and every one, forget for a space that the ship they fought for could only take a numbered few, that when it blasted off, some of the cleft would still be here. Desi. Dard twisted in the hole he had hollowed out with his body. Surely Desi would be aboard. There were so few children, so few women. Desi would be an asset. He tried to think only of a shadow he thought he saw move then, or a shadow he wanted to believe had moved as he snapped a shot at it. When this battle had begun, or rather when he had come on the scene, it had been mid-morning. Once during the day he had choked down some dry food which had been passed along, taking sips from a shared canteen. Now the dusk of evening lengthened the patches of gloom. Under the cover of the dark, the burper would rumble up to them to gnaw away at this second barrier, and the defenders would withdraw to delay and delay. But maybe the end of the battle would not wait upon nightfall after all. The familiar sound of blades beating the air was a warning which reached them before they saw the copter skimming up, its undercarriage scraping the tip of their first wall. Dard watched it resignedly, too apathetic to duck when its occupants hurled grenades. He crouched unmoving as the machine climbed for altitude. The explosion caught him in his hollow a second later. There was the sense of being torn out of hiding, of being flung free. Then he was on his hands and knees, creeping through a strangely silent world of rolling stones and sliding earth. Some feet away, a man struggled to free his legs from a mound of earth. He clawed at his covering with a single hand. The other, welling red, lay at a queer, twisted angle. Dard crept over, and the man stared at him wildly, mouthing words that Dard could not hear through the buzzing which filled his head. He dug with torn fingers into the mass which held the other prisoner. Another figure loomed over them, and Dard was shoved aside. The huge Santee knelt, scooping away soil and rock, until together they were able to pull the injured man free. Dard, his shaking head still ringing with a noise of its own, helped to lift the limp body and carry it back into the inner valley of the starship. Santee stumbled and brought all three of them down. Dard got to his knees and turned his head carefully to blink at what he saw behind him. Those in the copter had not ripped apart the barrier as they had planned. The grenades had jarred some hidden fault, bringing down more tons of soil and rock. Anyone viewing that spot now would never believe that there had once been an opening there. Of the defenders who had held that barricade, only the three of them remained. He, Santee, and the wounded man they had dragged with them. Dard wondered if he had been deafened by the explosion. The roaring in his head, which affected his balance when he tried to walk, had no connection with normal sound. He could hear nothing Santee was saying. He ran his hands aimlessly across his bruised and aching ribs, content to remain where he was. But the enemy was not satisfied to leave them alone. Spurts of dust stung up the rock wall. Dard stared at them a second or two before Santee's heavy fist sent him sprawling, and he realized that the three of them 
were cut off in a pocket while snipers in the copter tried to pick them off. This was the end, but to think that had brought him no sensation of fear. It was enough just to lie still and wait. He brought his hands up to support his buzzing head. Then somebody tugged roughly at his belt, rolling him over. Dard opened his eyes to see Santee taking the stun gun from him. Out of that thick mat of black hair which masked most of the man's face, his teeth showed in a white snarl of rage. But there were only two charges in the stun gun. Maybe he was able to say that out loud, for Santee glanced at him and then examined the clip. Two shots from a stun gun wasn't going to bring down a copter. The humor of that pricked him, and he laughed quietly to himself. A stun gun? Against a copter? Santee was up on his knees now behind the rock he had chosen for protection, his head straining back on his thick neck as he watched the movements of the copter. What happened next might have astonished Dard earlier, but now he was past amazement. The copter, making a wide turn, smashed into some invisible barrier in the air. Through the twilight, they saw it literally bounce back, as if some giant hand had slapped at an annoying insect. Then, broken as the insect would have been, it came tumbling down. Two of its passengers jumped and floated through the air, supported by some means that Dard could not identify. Santee scrambled to his feet and took careful aim with the stun gun. He picked off the nearer, but a second shot missed the other and the big man ducked only just in time to escape the return fire of the enemy. Making contact with the ground, the peace man dodged behind the crumpled fuselage of the copter. Why didn't he just walk across and finish them off? Dard speculated fretfully. Why draw out the process? It was getting darker and darker. He pawed at his eyes. Was his sight as well as his hearing going to fail him? But no, he could still see Santee, who had gone down on his belly and was now wriggling around the rocks, proceeding worm fashion along a finger of the slide toward the copter. Though how he expected to attack the man hidden there, with his bare hands and an empty stun gun against a rifle, it wasn't entirely clear. Dard's detachment persisted. He watched the action in which he was not involved critically. Wanting to see how it would end, he pulled himself up to follow Santee's slow progress. When the crawler disappeared from his range of vision, Dard was irritated. Suppose the man waiting over there was to believe that they were trying to escape down the valley. Wouldn't all his attention be in that direction, not on Santee? Dard felt about him in the gloom, hunting for stones of a suitable size, weighing and discarding until he held one larger than both his fists. Two more he lined up before him. With all the strength he could muster, he sent the first and largest stone hurling down the valley. A flash of fire answered its landing. The second and third rock followed at intervals. Each time he saw the mark of answering shots. His hearing was coming back now. He caught the faint echo of the last one. New stones were found and sent after the others to keep up the illusion of escape. But now there was no shot to reply. Had Santee reached the sniper? The boy sprawled back against the wall of the cleft and waited. For what, he did not altogether know. Santee's return? The starship's blast-off? Had they bought time enough for the frenzied workers back there? Was tonight going to see Kimber setting that course they had won from the voice, piloting the ship into space before he, too, went under the influence of Lars's drug and began the sleep from which there might be no awakening? 
But if the Voyagers did awaken, Dar drew a deep breath, and for a moment he forgot everything. His own aching, punished body, the rocky trap which enclosed him, the lack of future. He forgot all these in a dream of what might lie beyond the sky in which he now searched for that first wink of starlight. Another world, another sun, a fresh start. He started as a shape loomed out of the dark to cut off the sight of that star which he had just discovered. Fingers clawed painfully into his shoulders, bringing him up to his feet. Then mainly by Santee's brute force of body and will, they picked up the rescued man and started in a drunken stagger back into the valley. Dard forgot his dream. He needed all his strength to keep his feet, to go as Santee drove him. They made a half turn to avoid a boulder and came to a stop as lights blinded them. The ship was surrounded by a circle of blazing flares. The fury of industry, which had boiled about it during the loading, had stemmed to a mere trickle. Dard could see no women at all, and most of the men were gone also. The few who remained in sight were passing boxes up a ramp. Soon that would be done, and then those down there would enter the silvery shape. The hatch would close, the ship would rise on fire. Muted by the pain in his head, he heard the booming shout of a deep voice. Below, the loaders stopped work. Grouped together, they faced the survivors of the barrier battle. Santee called again, and that group broke apart as the men ran up to them. Dard sat down beside the injured man, his legs giving way under him. With detachment, he watched the coming of the other party. One man had his shirt badly torn across the shoulder. Would he land on another world across the void of space with that tatter still fluttering? The problem had some interest. Now a circle of legs walled the boy in. Boots spurted snow in his face. He was brought to his feet, arms about his shoulders, and led along to the ship. That wasn't right, he thought mistily. Kimber had said there wasn't enough room. He was one of the expendables. But he could find no words to argue with those who helped him along, not even when he pushed up that ramp into the ship. Kordoff stood in the hatched door, waving them along with an imperious arm. Then Dyard found himself in a tiny room, and a cup of milky liquid was thrust against his lips, held there until he docilely swallowed its contents to the last tasteless drop. When that was in him, he was lowered into a folding seat, pulled down from a starkly bare metal wall, and left to hold his spinning head in his hands. Yeah, the force field's still holding. They won't be able to blow through that last slide, eh? Not with anything they've got now. Words, a lot of words, passed back and forth across him. Sometimes for a second or two, they made good sense. Then meaning faded again. Can pretty well take your own time now, I think. Was that rumble from Santee? And that quick, crisp voice cutting in? What about the kid? Him? He's some scrapper. Got a head on him, too. Just shaking up a lot when that last blow-up hit us. But he's still in one piece. That was Kimber. Kimber had been asking about him. But Dard hadn't the strength left to raise his head and look for the pilot. We'll patch up Tremont first and send him along. You two will have to wait a while. Give them the soup and that first powder. Louis. 
Again, Dard was given a drink, this time a hot, steamy stuff, which carried the flavor of rich meat. After it, a capsule was to be swallowed. There were bruises and aches when he moved his body. He was just one huge ache. But he straightened up and tried to take an interest in his surroundings. Santee, his shirt, a few rags about his thick, hairy shoulders and arms, squatted on another pull-down seat directly across from Dard. Along the passage outside, there was a constant coming and going. Scraps of conversation reached them, most of which he didn't understand. You feeling better, kid? The big man asked. Dart answered that muffled question with a nod and then wished he hadn't moved his head. Are we going along? He shaped the words with difficulty. Santee's beard wagged as he roared with laughter. Like to see him throw us off the ship now. What made you think you weren't coming, kid? No room. Kimba said. Laughter faded from the eyes of the man opposite him. That might have been true, kid. Only a lot of good men died back there, putting such a plug in the valley. These buggers aren't going to get in till too late. Since the warp's still working, flying won't bring him in either. So we ain't needed out there no more. And maybe some good fighting men will be needed where this old gal's headed. So in we come, and they're going to pack us away with the rest of the cargo. Ain't that so, Doc? He ended by demanding of the tall young man who had just entered. The newcomer's parrot crest of blonde hair stood up from his scalp in a twist like the stem of a pear, and his wide eyes glowed with enthusiasm. You're young Nordis, aren't you? He demanded of Dard, ignoring Santee. I wish I could have known your brother. He was, uh, what, what he did. It's amazing. I wouldn't have believed such results were possible if I hadn't seen the formula. Hibernation and freezing. His formula combined with Tass's biological experiments. Why, we've even put three of Hammond's calves under. What grass they'll graze on before they die. And it's all due to Lars Nordis. Dard was too tired to show much interest in that. He wanted to go to sleep, to forget everything and everybody. To sleep, perchance to dream. The old words shaped patterns for him. Only not to dream would be better now. Did one dream in space? And what queer dreams haunted men lying in slumber between worlds? Dard mentally shook himself. There was something important, something he had to ask before he dared to let sleep come. Where's Desi? Nordis's little girl? Your niece? She's with my daughter and my wife. They're already under. Under what? In cold sleep. Most of the gang are there now. Just a few of us still loading. Then Kimber caught off an eye. We'll ride out until Kimber is sure of the course before we stow away. But all the rest of you... We'll be packed away before takeoff. Saves wear and tear on bodies and nerves under acceleration. Cutting Kimber from the doorway. He nodded over the medical shoulders at Dard. Glad to have you aboard, kid. I promise you no forced landings on this voyage. You're to be sealed up in cruise quarters, so you'll wake up early to see the new world. And with that, he was gone again. Maybe it was the capsule acting now. Maybe it was just that last reassurance from a man he had come to trust wholeheartedly. But Dard was warm and relaxed. Santee went away with Louis Scort, and Dard was alone. The noise in the corridor died away. At last he heard a warning bell, and a moment later the pound of heavy feet in a hurry roused him. 
The haste of that spoke of trouble, and with the support of the wall, he got up to look out. Kimber was coming down a spiral stairway, the center core of the ship. In his hand was one of the snub-nosed ray guns Sack had had. He passed Dard without a word. Bracing his hands against the wall of the corridor, Dard shuffled along in his wake. Then he peered out of an opening to see the pilot squatting off the ramp. It was black night outside. Most of the flares had gone out. Dard listened. He could hear at intervals the blast of the burper. The peace men were still doggedly attacking the cleft barrier. But what had Kimber come to guard and why? Have some important possessions been left in the caverns? Dard slumped against the lock and watched the light spark to life in the mouth of the tunnel. A man came running out, covering the ground to the foot of the ship ramp in ground-eating leaps. He dashed to Kimber, and Dard had just enough time to get back as Santee burst in. Get going! The big man bore him along the corridor, and Kimber joined them. He touched some control, and the hatch lock was sealed. Santee, panting, grinned. Neat job, if I do say so myself, he reported. The space warp is off, and the final charge is set for 40 minutes from now. We'll blast before then. Yeah, better get along both of you then. Louis's waiting. We don't want to scrape a couple of acceleration cases off the floor later, returned Kimber. And with the aid of the other two, Dard pulled his tired body up the stairs, past various landing stages where sealed doors confronted them. Kordoff's broad face appeared at last, surveying them anxiously, and it was he who lifted Dard up the last three steps. Kimber left them, climbing on through the opening above into the control chamber. He did not glance back or say goodbye. In here, Kordoff thrust them ahead of him. Dard, brought face to face with what that cabin contained, knew a sudden repulsion. Those boxes, shelled in a metal rack, they too closely resembled coffins, and the rack was full except for the bottommost box, which awaited open on the floor. Kordoff pointed to it. That's for you, Santi. Built for a big boy. You're lighter, Dard. We'll fit you in on top over on the other side. A second rack stood against the farther wall with four more of the coffins ready and waiting. Dard shivered, but it was not imagination. There was a chill in the air coming from the open boxes. Kordoff explained, You go to sleep, and then you freeze. Santee chuckled. Just so you thaw us out again, Tass. I ain't aiming to spend the rest of my life an icicle, so you brainy boys can prove something or other. Now what do we do, climb in? Sleep first, ordered the first scientist, and then you get a couple of shots. He pulled along a small rolling tray table on which were laid a series of hypodermics. Carefully, he selected two, one filled with a red-brown fluid and the other a colorless substance. As Dard fumbled at the fastenings of the torn uniform he still wore, Santee asked a question for both of them. And how do we wake up when the right time comes? Got any alarms set in these contraptions? Those three. Kordoff indicated the three lower coffins in the far rack are especially fitted, arranged to awaken those inside, Kimber, Louie, and me. When the ship signals that it has reached the end of the course set, which will be when the instruments raise a sun enough like Sol to nourish Earth-type planets, we feed that into her robot controls once we are free in space. During the voyage, 
She may vary the path to make evasions of meteors or for other reasons, but she will always come back to the set course. If we are close to a solar system when we are awakened, and Kimber has done everything possible to assure that, then we shall arouse you others needed to bring the ship down. Most of you won't be awakened until after we land. There isn't enough room. How long is this going to be? Kordoff shrugged. Who knows? No man has yet pioneered into the galaxy. It may be for generations. Santee rolled his discarded clothing into a ball and waited stoically for Kordoff to give him the shots. Then, with a wave of one big fist, he climbed into the coffin and lay down. Kordoff made adjustments at the other end. Icy air welled up in a freezing puff. Santee's eyes closed as the first scientist moved the lid into place before setting the three dials on the side. Their pointers swung until the needles came to rest at the far end. Kordoff pushed the box back onto the rack. No for you, he turned to Dard. The top box lowered itself on two long arms from the top of the other rack. Dard discarded his last piece of clothing with a vast reluctance. Surely he could understand the theory of this, what his brother had worked out for them, but the reality, to be frozen in a box, to go sightlessly, helplessly into the void, perhaps never to awaken? With his teeth set hard, he fought back the panic those thoughts churned up in him, and he was fighting so hard that the prick of the first injection came as a shock. He started only to have Kordoff's hand close as a vice upon his upper arm and hold him steady for a second. That's all. In with you, no son. See you in another world. Kordoff was laughing, but Dard's weak, answering smile as he settled himself into the coffin had no humor in it, because Kordoff could be so very right. The cover was going on. He had an insane desire to scream out that he wasn't going to be shut in this way, that he wanted out, not only out of the box, but out of this whole crazy venture. But the lid was on now, and it was cold, so cold and dark and cold. This was space as man had always believed it would be, cold and dark, eternal cold and dark without end. Book Two, Astra, Chapter One, Awakening. It was warm and there was a light, striking redly through Dard's closed eyelids. The warmth was good, but he wanted to twist his head away from the demands of that light, to move. But movement required effort he had not yet the strength to make. It would be better just to slip back into the pleasant darkness, to sleep. A stab of pain shook him out of that floating ease. Dard made a great effort and forced his eyelids up. Cloudy masses of color moved above him, sometimes changing position in quick jerks, which removed them entirely from the area of his vision. The cloudiness slowly disappeared and lines tightened and drew together. A face, vaguely familiar, hands which descended to his level of sight. He became aware of the hands moving across his body and another prick of pain followed. There was sound, staccato bursts, talking, talking. Dard willed his mouth to open, his tongue to move, but obedience came with agonizing slowness 
as if those particular motions had not been made for a long, long time. But how long? Long? He began to remember, and his hands turned to feel for the confines of the coffin. But they met no barrier. He was no longer imprisoned in the box. Drink up, kid. The words sorted themselves into coherent speech as he sucked on the tube which had been placed in his mouth. The drink was hot. Warmth tingled inside him as well as without, driving away the chill which had immobilized his muscles. Strangely, he was drowsy again, and this time the hands did not work to keep him conscious. That's right. Take it easy. We'll be seeing you. That reassurance carried into sleep with him. It held through to his second awakening. This time he raised himself up and looked around. He had been stretched on a soft, thick pad on the floor of the oddest room he had ever seen. Half lying in a cushioned chair swung on webbing was a dark-haired man, intent upon a wide screen set in the wall before him. There were two more such seats, each before a board of controls, and Dard saw three more such floor mats as the one he rested upon, each equipped with a set of straps and buckles. He drew his feet up under him to sit cross-legged. Then he studied the cabin and put together bits of recollection. This could not be anything but the control cabin of the starship. He was awake, had been aroused, which meant... His hands went to his mouth in an involuntary gesture. Now he wanted to see what was on that screen his cabin companion watched. He had to see. But his body could only move slowly. Rusty joints, slack muscles. Why, he creaked. Hands and eyes told him that he was clothed, though the cloth of the breeches and blouse were sleek and smooth, like no other fabric he had ever seen, colored a mixture of brown and green. He put out his feet in their queer soft boots and inched forward to grab at the nearest swinging chair. The watcher turned his head and smiled. It was Kimber the same Kimber he had last seen on his way to this cabin on the night the voyage had begun. How long ago had that been? Greetings. The pilot pointed to the chair beside his own. Sit down. You haven't got your ship's legs yet. Did you have any good dreams? Dard moved his tongue experimentally. I can't remember any. The words came out easily now. At least his voice hadn't rusted away. Where are we? Kimber chuckled. Space on the nose, but we're near enough to a reasonable goal for our old girl here to wake court off of me. Then we added you to the company. We'll probably bring around a couple more before we land, see? On the screen, three specks of light dotted the dark glass. That's it. New solar system, my boy. We've had some luck, Lord. Luck's ridden on our rocket most of the way. That, Kimber pointed to the largest of the dots, that is a yellow sun. Proximate temperature, 11,000 degrees. Proximate size, same as Saul. In fact, could be Saul's twin brother. And being Saul's twin, we can hope that one of its three planets is enough like Terra to make us welcome. Three planets? I only see two. Well, the other is behind Saul, too, now. We've seen her, in fact. Tass and I have had a week to chart this system since the ship's controls roused us. Give us another day, and we'll pick out the world we want and land the ship. Three worlds and a yellow sun. 
Dar wished that he knew more, that his education was better than a collection of scraps and patches. Back on Earth, under Pax, it was a feat to be able to read and write. But now he felt like he was nothing at all. Why did you waken me? he asked. Well, I can't help with the ship. You said Kodolf and you. He was trying to remember. There was a third man to be roused early. Kimber's attention was given back to the screen. Now he answered quickly. You were available, and you could help Kodolf. Louis didn't make it. Louis Scort? That young Manico who had been so enthusiastic about Lars's drugs? He had been the third man. But what happened? We can't tell now. All of this, the ship, of course, the freeze boxes were constructed on hope alone. We had no way of testing anything properly. The ship awakened Kordoff and me, but Louis. How long have we been cruising in deep space, then? Uh, at least three hundred years, maybe more. Time and space may be different from planet time. That is one of the points scientists have argued about. We have no accurate way of telling. Was it only Louis's box that failed? Kimber's face was grim now, as it had been on that night they fought their way back to the cleft. Till we land and start to rouse the whole company, we can't tell. The freeze boxes can't be opened until their occupants are ready for revival, and the ship is too small to do that before landing. Coffins. Coffins were what they resembled, and coffins they might be for the whole inert cargo the starship carried. Perhaps they were the only three who survived. We can hope for a high percentage of survivals, Kimber continued. Louis's box had the special controls. That may have been the trouble. But out of four, three of us are all right. Kordoff? Yes, and what does Kordoff do? Asked the hearty voice behind them. The stocky first scientist elbowed his way between the two swinging seats and handed the occupant of each a round plastic bulb from which a tube projected. He cradled a third in his own hand as he settled on the other chair. Gordov, he answered his own question, continues to see after your puny bodies, my friend, and you may be glad of his personal interest in them. You will now consume what you hold in your paws and be thankful. He inserted the bulb in his mouth and took a smacking suck. Dar discovered he had been given to drink the same warm, salty stuff that he'd been given on that first awakening and it satisfied him completely, but he only took one experimental drag before he demanded, I heard about Louis. How many others? Task Kordoff wiped his mouth with the back of his square hand. That we cannot tell. We dare not investigate the boxes too closely until a landing has been made. Yes, all of us want an answer to that question, young man. How many? We can hope that most came through. I propose to open two more from the cruise quarters. There are men in them whose skills we need. But for the rest, their slumbers must continue until we have the new world to offer them. And that too, he waved at the visiscreen, presents problems. We have found the proper sort of sun, but remember, Sol had nine planets, and only one of which mankind could live at ease. Here are three planets. Perhaps a Mars, a Venus, a Mercury, but no Terra. Which do you think we should try, Sim? The pilot drank before he replied. Judging by the charted orbits, I'd settle for the middle one. It's closer to Sol 2 than Terra was to Sol 1, but 
It has the nearest approach to a Terran orbit. I don't know anything about astronomy, Dard ventured. You expect this sun to produce an Earth-type planet because it's a yellow one, but if one of those three worlds is another Terra, what about intelligent life on it? Couldn't the same general conditions have produced the same type of dominant life form? Kordoff leaned forward, disturbing the precarious balance of his swinging seat. Intelligent life, maybe. Humanoid or man, only perhaps. If on one planet the primate is the ruling form, on another it may be the insect or the carnivora. Don't forget this. Kimber held up one hand and flexed his fingers in front of the screen. Man's hands helped to make him the ruling form. Suppose you had only, say, a cat's paw. Even if intelligence went with it, I would defy anybody to tell me that a cat is not an intelligent creature. Its brains may work in a different pattern, maybe, but no one who has lived with one can deny it can alter its environment to suit its convenience, in spite of the general stupidity of the human beings that have to deal with it. But if we'd been born with paws instead of hands, no matter what super brains we had, could we have produced tools or other artifacts? Primates on Terra had hands, and they used them to pull themselves up to a material civilization, just as they used monkey chatter and worse than monkey manners to break up what they themselves had created. No, if we had not possessed hands, we would have achieved nothing. Very well, Kordoff returned. I grant you the advantage of hands, but I say still that some ruling species other than primates might well have developed under slightly different conditions. All history, both man-made and physical, is conditioned by ifs. Suppose your super cats have learned to use their paws and are awaiting us. But this is romancing, he laughed. Let us hope that what lies there is a world upon which intelligent life has never come into existence at all. If we are lucky. Kimber scowled at the screen. Luck has ridden on our jets all the way. Sometimes I wonder if we have been a little too lucky, and there's a rather nasty payoff waiting for us right at the end of this voyage. But we can at least choose our landing place, and I intend to set us down as far from any signs of civilization as possible, if there is a civilization. Say a desert, or... We shall leave the selection of this spot to you, Sim. I'm not dart. If you have finished your meal, you will please come with me. There is work to be done. Dard's attempt to get to his feet unbalanced him, and he would have fallen had it not been for the first scientist. These cabins have some gravity, Kordoff explained, but not as much as we knew in Terra. Hold on and move slowly until you learn how to keep your feet. Dard did as advised, clutching at chairs and anything within reach until he came to the round opening of the door. Beyond that was a much smaller cabin with two built-in bunks and a series of supply cupboards. This is the pilot's quarters during an interplanetary run. Kordoff crossed to the center of the room where a well-shaped opening gave access to the ship below. Come on down. Dard gingerly descended the steep stairs, coming into the section where he had been stored away for cold sleep, and Kordoff was going into that very cabin. The three boxes in the far rack were open. On the other rack, the coffins were solidly white, as if they had been carved from virgin snow. Kordoff pressed a button and the topmost box came down to the floor. He freed it from the arms which had lowered it and trundled his prize to the door with Dard's help. 
Together they brought the coffin into a second chamber, which was a miniature laboratory. Kordoff went down on his knees to read the dials. After a minute's inspection, he sighed with relief. It is well. Now we shall open it. The lid resisted as if ages of time had applied a stiff glue, but under continued pressure it gave at last with a faint swish of air. Crisp cold curled up around them, bringing with it chemical scents. The first scientist examined the stiff body in the exposed hollow. Yes, yes, now we must help him to live again. First, onto the cot there. Dard lifted the man onto the cot in the middle of the room. Under direction, he rubbed the icy flesh with oils from a bottle Kordoff thrust upon him, watching the first scientist inject various fluids over the heart and in scattered veins. Warmth was coming back into the body as they worked, and when the man had fully roused, been fed, and had fallen into the sudden second sleep, Dard aided in dressing him and helping transport the body up to the control cabin to be laid out on the accelerator mat. Who did you... Oh, Cully. Kimber identified the newly revived crewman. That's good. Good choice. Who else are you going to bring around? Kordoff, puffing a little, took a moment to consider. We have Santhi, Rogan, and McClay there. Well, the ship's not Santee's sort of job. Cully's our engineer. Wait, Rogan? He had space training. He was a televisor expert. We need him. Rogan that shall be then. But first, we have to take a rest. We shall not need a televisor expert just yet, huh? Kimber glanced at the timepiece set at the control board. Not for another five hours at least, maybe eight, if you want to be lazy. I am lazy when laziness is of advantage. Much of the troubles from which we have fled have been born of too much rushing around, trying to keep busy. There is a time for working as hard as a man can work, yes. But there must be also hours to sit in the sun and think long thoughts and do nothing. Too much rushing wears out the body, and maybe also the mind. We must make haste slowly if we would make it at all. Whether it was some lingering effect of the cold sleep, they could not decide, but they all found themselves dropping off into sudden naps. Kordoff believed that the condition would pass, but Kimber was uneasy as they approached the chosen planet and demanded a stimulant from the first scientist. I want to be awake now. Dard caught a scrap of conversation as he came back from a rest on one of the bunks in the other cabins. To go off in a dream just when I take the ship into the atmosphere, that is not possible. We aren't out of the woods yet, not by a long margin. Cully could take the controls in a pinch, and so could Rogan, when you get him out of cold storage. But neither is a trained pilot, and landing on unknown terrain is no job for a beginner. Very well, Sim. You shall have your appeal in plenty of time. But now you're to go in, lie down, and relax. Not fight sleep. I promise I shall rouse you in plenty of time. And meanwhile, Cully will take your seat and watch the course. The tall, thin engineer, who had said very little since his awakening, only nodded as he folded his loose-limbed frame into Kimber's reluctantly vacated space. He made some small adjustment on the control board and dropped his head back on the chair rest to watch the screen. During the past hours, the points of light had altered. The ball of flame Kimber designated as Sol 2 had slipped away over the edge of their narrow slice of vision. 
but the world they had chosen filled most of the expanse now, growing larger by the second. Kordoff sat down at one of the other chairs to watch with Dard. The sphere on the screen now had a bluish-green tinge with patches of other color. Polar regions. Snow, Kordoff commented. Kali replied with a single, Yeah. And seas, to which Kali added the first long speech he had yet made. Got a lot of water. Should be picking up all the land masses soon. Unless it's all water, mused Kordoff. And then, he grinned at Dart over his shoulder, we shall be forced to leave it to the fish and try again. One thing missing, Kali adjusted the screen control for a second time. No moon. No moon. Dard watched that enlarging sphere, and for the first time since awakening, the dream mood of passive acceptance of events cracked. To live under a sky where no silver globe ever hung. The moon was gone. All the old songs men had sung, the old legends they had told and retold, the bit of history they cherished that the moon was their first step into space. All gone. No moon ever again. Then what will future poets find to rhyme with June in all their effusions? rumbled Kordoff. In the nights to come, they will be dark ones. But one cannot have everything, even another stepping stone to space. That was how our moon served us, a way station, a beckoning signpost which lured us out and on. If there is or ever was intelligent life down there, they lacked that. No sign of space travel? Kelly wanted to know with a spark of interest. None, but of course we can in no way be sure. Just because nothing has registered on our screens, we cannot say it does not exist. If we were but a fraction off a well-traveled space lane, we would not know it. And now, Dard, we have Rogan to rise. I promised Sim he would be on hand to share duty. Again they made the trip below, lifted out the proper box, and brought back to life the man who slumbered in it. This is the last one, stated Kordoff when they had established Rogan in the control cabin. No more until after we land. Huh? What? He had turned to look at the screen, and the exclamation was jolted out of him by what he saw there. Land masses, mottled green, blue, red, against which seas of a brighter hue washed. So, we do not join the fish. Instead, you, Dard, must go and shake Sim back to life. Now is the time for him to be on duty. Shortly afterwards, Dard crouched on one of the acceleration mats beside the unconscious Rogan, while the others occupied the chairs before the controls. The atmosphere within the cabin was tense, and yet Kimber alone was at ease. Rogan come to yet? He asked without turning his head. Dard gently shook the shoulder of the man on the next mat. He stirred and muttered. Then his eyes opened and he scowled up at the roof of the cabin. A second later, he sat up. We have made it, he shouted. That we did, Kordoff answered cheerfully. And now? Now there's a job waiting for you, fella, broke in Kimber. Come up and tell us what you think of this. Kordoff spilled out of the third chair and helped Rogan into it, holding tightly to the arms of the seat as if he feared any moment to be tossed out of it. Rogan gave his full attention to the screen. He drew a deep breath of pure wonder. It is beautiful, Dart agreed with that. 
The mingling of color was working on him, just as sunsets back on Terra had been able to do. There were no words he knew to describe when he now saw, but he didn't have a chance to watch long. Better strap down, came the suggestion of the pilot. We're going in. Kordoff plumped down on one of the acceleration mats, pulling the harness which flanked it up over his body, and Dart did the same. He was flat on his back against the spongy stuff of the mat with his head at an angle from which he could not see the screen. They bored into the atmosphere, and he must have blacked out, for he never afterwards remembered the last part of the furious descent. The ship shuddered, pushing up, or was it down, upon him. He had a misty idea that this must be full gravity returning. Then there was a shock which tore at the webs holding his body, and he gasped, fighting for breath. But his hands were already at the buckles which fastened him down as he heard a voice say, End of the line! All out! And a reply in Cully's dry tone. Neat, Sam. Nice and neat. Neat.